You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome, this is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Thursday, the 6th of August, 2020. Thank you for tuning in. And on tonight's program, and before we really get into it, apologies, <laughs> this program's going a lot later than initially intended. Uh, everything seems to be breaking, and I don't know, they, again, same issue last week. Something has changed on YouTube for going live, and I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I just don't have as much time anymore to be spending on tech issues. So they have changed something. I'm going to blame YouTube, of course. Uh, and that has, I don't know, there was a way I did it before, and I'm going to have to figure out what I'm doing wrong. And also my iPad, for some reason, the thing I play the music on, I don't know if anybody, any of you guys do podcasts, anybody's listening to this, if you could shoot me an email and help me, that'd be great. Um, I'm using Boss Jock, and it just... The music just sounds weird. It sounds like actually different music entirely. And when I reloaded the iPod, I just have an iPod, which I play the introductory music through. Um, it just sounded like it was slow motion or something. So this has happened once or twice before, and um, I'm going to be changing to... I have a separate laptop, so I'm probably going to start doing that. Uh, so hopefully that will solve things. Hope you are all doing well. And hope the Lord is blessing you. And uh, tonight we're going to be looking at Reformed Theology. And I have done a program before on Reformed Theology, what Reformed Theology is. Now, don't worry if you, you say, oh, I missed the introductory program. <laughs> I, I'll go through what I mean by Reformed Theology and how it's much more than just the tulip. It's much more than just Calvinism. And that's kind of why I'm doing the program. I'm also doing a program today on Reformed Theology because I, I, I'm, I'm deeply disturbed by a lot of the, the division that's going on right now and and if we're committed to biblical truth which we believe is the reformed faith then we must see the importance of it so this will kind of build on a program i did i think it's episode 269 off the top of my head i'll put it in with the program on the megiddo radio program but suffice to say it's not just Calvinism. And I think, of course, we're glad when people come to understand the, the truths espoused in the Synod of Dort, and also that they reject the five errors of Arminianism, um, the five Romanstrans points. That's great. But that wasn't all. That wasn't all the Reformers wrote about. That wasn't all they taught about. And uh, we got to be careful that we're not reactionary, just simply taking the tulip as our own because the alternative is horrendous for us because we want to avoid easy prayerism and all this kind of stuff. So we need we need all of it, okay? Um, look, there'll be brothers and sisters in Christ who are not Reformed, but if we believe in the Reformed faith, we need to also see the importance of it. These are th not things that are not important. These are not things that have no consequences. They have massive consequences. And I actually believe today, many of the consequences are bearing themselves out. One of which is independency, but we'll get onto that later on. I, there, there are practical problems with independent church government. Um, and the churches in smithereens and, um, It'll take a long time, but we have to start talking about being one again. One. One church. Not with a hierarchy in terms of, I don't believe that I'm a Presbyterian, but we can't, it, it just becomes so fragmented so quickly. And I'm not talking about this is like a, this is a, a pragmatic argument. I suppose in a sense, it's a secondary, we see the issues that crop up from a pragmatic argument. But primarily, we've got to do it because the scriptures 
because Christ, when he prayed to his father in John 17, prayed for that type of unity. Not with a false church of Rome or anything else like that, but with true Christians united on truth, no compromise and stuff like that, of course. But we've got to promote that and not endlessly schism and split and do our own thing. We've got to function as a body, especially in the day and age in which we live, especially with all, the, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of people getting so frustrated and impatient with things. And a lot of people seem to have gotten MDs over the last six months that I wasn't aware of. And um, ill-advisedly speaking on things, I, I'll happily point towards somebody I think is particularly good and expertise in these areas. And I think we should be educated as possible, but also realize our limitations. We're not doctors. We're not virologists, most of us. Um, and these are areas people spend decades studying. They're complicated areas with lots of different factors involved. And we've got to be humble enough to realize our limitations. And we've also got to realize those who are trained to preach the gospel or political pundits, that's exactly what they are not doctors or anything else like that. So with that said, we're going to go to our psalm. So we're going through the Psalter, and uh, we're going to read through Psalm 25, just make a couple of quick points before we get into our main issue, talk about the, the importance of Reformed theology. And setting our foundations right before we may possibly look at some of the issues that are coming up. I, You might have noticed the last few months that I haven't really touched a lot of the, I try not to touch a lot of the hot button topics. It's not because I, I, hopefully people (laughs) seen it. Maybe I've, maybe I've delved into too many things over the years. I don't know, but the church needs calm right now. The church needs its foundations. The church needs to look to Christ. And right now, a lot of, there's a lot of stirring. There's a lot of fuel being thrown on the fire. We don't need that right now. We need to be unified. We need to be together. We need to support each other. Not share every foolish thing that enters into our head. This is a time for calm. Because many people are not. Okay, so let's look at Psalm 25. And before we read it, we'll pray for the Lord's guidance to help us and guide us. Almighty and ever-living God, Father in heaven, we pray for your blessing upon this reading of your word, Psalm 25, and help us to see your truth and help us, Lord, that we may understand it and be blessed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. And again, as ever, I encourage you all to get a Psalter. One of the easiest ones to get is from Trinitarian Bible Society, the 1650 Scottish Medical Psalter, and sing through, even if you're by yourself, or whatever the case may be, family, forget whether you're locked down or not, sing the Psalter. Sing the Psalter in your home. So, um, the word of Christ, as it's called in Colossians 3.16. Psalm 25, this is God's word. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let not one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice. The humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies for your name's sake, O Lord. Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity. 
and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me. For I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look at my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many. They hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O Lord, out of their troubles. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. I venture to say, in context, we're looking at a second reform theology, we're not going to make you, I don't see how you can make much sense of this psalm without being reformed, without being covenantal. And by that mean, if you're dispensationalist, if you think that the church is something that started in Matthew chapter 16 or possibly Acts chapter 2, how would this apply to us? When it talks about good and upright is the Lord, of course, we all believe that who are Christians. But then it says in verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant. Oh, that's got nothing to do with us, has it? How about the the covenant blessings and cursings put forth by the Bible before his people? And this is when you get a very truncated view of history, of theology of the word of God. Now what happens after a while with such a view, you treat the Old Testament largely, it is history, yeah, but it's history by which we understand the way God interacts with his people, whereby we learn about him. It's not a series of biology or biographies. Of course, it includes a lot of information about various people, of course, but it's about God, first and foremost. But to such as keep his covenant, his covenant, that one covenant began right after the fall of Adam. So as soon as that happens, the only way that man can have any relationship is by grace and by grace alone, as soon as the fall. Genesis 3.15 onwards. And then from there on, that covenant is shown through various administrations and things like that. Genesis 17, for example, very clearly showing that everlasting covenant. But how do we keep the covenant? To such as keep the covenant and his testimonies. It's by faith and by faith alone. And if we're trusting in Christ Jesus, we will obey him. Now, our obedience in no way, shape, or form has anything to do with our justification. If it did, we would have no hope. But we do obey him. We do follow him. Somebody who is trusted in the Lord is a follower of the Lord and someone who keeps his covenant. And again, that'll make little sense. And antinomies will, will creep in pretty quickly. If I would venture to say you don't have a reformed understanding of what these verses say. And when you come against oppression, when you come against the enemies of the Lord who will wish to do you harm, much of that peace will not be understood by you. Much of the blessings that are toward you Somebody in union with Christ. Now, of course, the Psalms are speaking about Christ. You say, well, aren't they talking about David? Yeah, but who is David a type of? He's a type of Christ. And it says at the end, Redeem Israel, O Lord. 
out of their troubles. Now, who is Israel at the time of which the psalmist wrote the psalm? God's people. And what happened in the first century? A very small number. Found largely in Judea. And then what happened? The all people from all of the nations began to come into that kingdom. Before that, even in Pentecost, you have all these Jews from all over the, the empire, some from Rome, Medes, uh, Cappadocia, all over from Mesopotamia, speaking different languages. We see that in Acts chapter 2. But also the, Gen- the Samaritans, Acts chapter 8, the the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10, come into Israel, the commonwealth of Israel, one church. That, that was the church of the day. Redeem your people, O Lord, your chosen ones. They, those who are, it, that's what Israel is. Now, the issue of Israel according to the flesh is another issue, yes, and I believe that there's, you know, there's a future. I believe that a large number of Jews will be saved in the future, but that's a different kind of discussion here. God's people, redeem Israel, O Lord, from out of their troubles. And again, that comfort is not there if you just kind of, well, that's just history. Look, brethren, anybody's listening to this and maybe is a dispensationalist, I have come from a dispensationalist background. I... I was saved about six months, and I learned about a lot of dispensationalist theology. And I, I remember at the beginning, it, it seemed to make a lot of sense to me. And being biblical and dispensationalist, it just seemed to be synonymous. And if you deny dispensation, well, you're denying the Bible, and you're denying the literal interpretation. And I realized over time that that wasn't true. Um, n- nobody, not e- no one takes every single verse of the Bible. I've got to be very careful when I say this, but there's always parts of the Bible that are, are we're told to interpret it literally, that these are types, these are kinds. We don't, you know, when it talks about we are building blocks of the temple, we don't think that we're actually blocks of cement or something like that. And we don't, when we talks about Jesus as the door, we don't think he's a literal door. He is the way, the truth, and life, of course. It is there, like a, a figurative meaning is to point towards something that is literally true. But, but who is Israel? Literally, God's people. Who are God's people today? Again, same as it was back then, those who called upon the name of the Lord, those who trusted upon the name of Jehovah, God himself. The same Savior, go through Hebrews chapter 11, and it shows various examples, Moses and others who trusted in Christ. So the same faith, Acts chapter 7, uh, if anybody wants to throw it up in the chat, actually, Acts chapter 7, what is it? I think it's first, I can't remember, 50-something, um, talks about the church in the wilderness or the congregation in the wilderness, the ecclesia in the wilderness. Um, the Septuagint, by the way, the, the word we have, ecclesia, is not just used in the New Testament, but the Old Testament Septuagint also uses, at times, uses the word ecclesia, and it's often translated congregation in our Bibles. So, Lord willing, that was an encouragement to you that we have to seek the Lord in terms of when we're de- we need deliverance from our enemies, but we, we ourselves, we need forgiveness. And we need to be delivered, not just from our enemies, not just from those who oppress us. We also need to be delivered from our sins. And I pray that each and everyone listening knows our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and has repented of their sins. I pray that you are not still in your sin. And I pray that you would see your need for Christ, that it's only in him and in him alone have you any hope for salvation. You cannot earn. You cannot earn anything but the wrath of God because we're sinners and God is just. 
God is just. Okay, so we're going to delve into Reformed theology now. That um, kind of tied in a little bit there. Practical ways in which certain verses didn't make a lot of sense to me when I was a dispensationalist, then began to make sense once my theology began to change, once my understanding of various texts began to develop over time. And it takes time and you need to be also patient with yourself. I'm still, we're all going to be still until this side of eternity, Lord willing, trying to understand the scriptures better. There's always going to be parts of the scriptures where we may be scratching our heads and saying, trying to explain it properly. But at the same time, we have the large overriding framework. Anyway, so a couple of days ago, there's... With a number of the debates we're going on and the different things about opening churches, not opening churches, there was a suggestion, I'm going to mention the name because I might as well, I think people will know. There was a suggestion by Doug Wilson that John MacArthur should be kind of a spokesman in the kind of culture war. Not getting into Doug Wilson at this moment or um, John MacArthur per se, but just the you know this idea of a representative. And um, when you have a situation, right? This is nothing new. This is nothing new. When you have a situation where the the most popular voices, the most Influential voices, probably, probably the person with the biggest churches, largest money, best lawyers. What well, I don't know, uh, become the most influential. There's there's problems ahead, uh, and when, and this can happen to Presbyterian denominations too. This is not something completely, you know, just something for independent church. Far from it. Sadly, um, there are denominations that that the church is very independent. Minded, they don't really work together as a unit, and I praise God. I'll be honest; one of the great black. I, I've only been on Presbyterian what five, six years, or whatever it's been. The uh, nomination I'm part of. I, I praise God. I think we're not perfect, but I think people work together really, really well. And sometimes I'm just really thankful. And people have challenged me, other ministers and other elders, and um, where. I can develop in these areas. So, but when you get this whole thing, I don't want to say cult of personality. I like John MacArthur. I, I really like John MacArthur. I, blessed by his ministry over the years, will continue to read his book. Whatever disagreements I may have with current events or things that are happening, but I do have concerns and, and certain things have come up as they do from time to time. What is Reformed theology? Because if we want Reformation, right, and we are talking about Reformation as covenantal, um, we've got to make sure that we are reformed in our responses to the culture. I'm not saying you ignore the culture or ignore the sin of the culture, John the Baptist didn't or anything else like that, but that our, our response is thoughtful, biblical, loving, Christ honoring and with accountability. With accountability. We've got to make sure, what I mean by reactionary, that we're not just, hey, I don't like what's going on here, so therefore I'm just going to go to the opposite. I don't like the Democrats, so therefore I'm going to, you know, put in all my support behind, I don't know, Donald Trump or whoever's the Republican candidate. Before you know it, hey, your church has become a place of political campaigning. It, sir, I, I was, I wasn't long a fundamentalist. I was for a couple of years, I was in independent fundamental Baptist churches. And look, the churches I were in were small. Uh, one church in Ireland, I'm trying to think. Yeah, one church in Ireland, uh, one church in Italy. We're in a big church. We're massively influential. And to be honest, those, those churches weren't political at all. But having looked at the overall movement more in the United States, it's massive in the, big enough in the United States. You'd have people like 
you know, Jack Isles would have been influential back in the 1990s, 1980s and stuff like that and other people as well. But some of these churches were not weird like that and were kind of, you know, the gospel was preached. There would be things you disagree with, but at least the gospel would be preached and things like that. But some of them, while a lot of good, but then they would drift into being politically influential. And I fear that that's going to happen with a number of churches. I fear for the influence of a political party on the church, especially when that political party, be it the Republicans in the United States, in our, <laughs> we're not exempt here in Northern Ireland, by the way. I'm from, I'm not originally from Northern Ireland, but I live in Northern Ireland. And um, we have a party called the DUP, Democratic Unionist Party. And there's one or two others, but they would be the main one being political power. Ian Paisley used to be the leader of them, started them. And uh, so they would be say, well, okay, you're Christian. You, you got to support the DUP or, you know, I suppose it's the same in America. You got to support um, the Republicans because the Democrats are going to get in. Or, you know, you got to, you got to support, you know, the conservatives if you're in England or wherever, wherever you're talking about. We've got to make sure that we're we're not just reactionary and we're not just caught up in a political movement which thinks little of the Reformed faith. That what we're doing, if if we claim to be in the Reformed tradition, I'm not saying we should be following tradition, but we're trying to be as biblical as possible. That way, the law of God is not just applied in the church on Sunday, but it's applied across the week, in our homes, and in the state. And I'll put it even more clearly than this, that we don't think that the state can just ignore the first table of the law and think it is some optional extra, or even worse, think that it is some form of tyranny when the first table of the law is to be obeyed. The first table of the law, by the way, doesn't say anything about punishments or things like that. This is completely separate to theonomy. Theonomy, I completely disagree with, by the way, in case anybody either is a theonomist or has a massive issue with theonomy, I also do as well. So we got to make sure our response to this is biblical. And I, and I fear in a lot of cases, it's not. I fear in a lot of cases, it's annoyance. We're, we're reacting. I empathize with a lot. I, I sympathize with it. I get it. Governments across the world are very inconsistent right now. They always have been. But now it's impacting us with COVID and everything else like that. So now it's really testing our patience even more. So what is Reformed Theology? I, I don't want to spend a ton of time going through what exactly is Reformed Theology, because I've done a different program on that. But briefly here, Reformed Theology is not just TULIP. The, the five points of Calvinism. But if we don't have that, we don't have Reformed Theology. So the Synod of the Dort, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints are essential to reform theology. You get you get the odd Amoreldian who may be a four-pointer, inconsistent in history, but at the same time, it must be there. It ceases to be a reform theology. Ah, there's no way that any definition of reform theology can include anything that doesn't include a rejection of free mill, free free mill, free will Arminianism. Okay. So it must include that. That's essential. But it's not just that. That's Calvinism, right? We've kind of defined it like that. But it must include the moral law. It must include, you go through any systematic theology from history, the Ten Commandments are gone through, exposited. It's in all the catechisms. I suppose if you want a quick definition, the confessions. There are slight differences in the confessions, but I'm talking about what unites us. I mean, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Standards, 
those make up Reformed theology. That is what John Calvin wrote about in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. That is Reformed theology. Not everything in the 16th century that was Christian was necessarily Reformed, by the way. I'm talking about the historical definition, if it means anything at all. The Lutherans went one way, the Reformed went another, especially when it came to worship and other things like that. It wasn't just over the Lord's table they disagreed. So it is far more than just Calvinism, because if we don't have a high view of the moral law, one of the things that goes out the window is the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath, if you go through early church history, was observed, synonymous with the Lord's Day. And that's just because, okay, early church fathers believed in anything like that. It's biblical. It was it's there from creation week, um, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. You must be in some way Sabbatarian. One of the things that dispensationalism has done is eroded any thought about the Sabbath and made us very much a religion of purely the New Testament and very ignorant of the Old Testament, of its history and what it calls us to do. Now, and I say the Sabbath because um, there'll be, there's things like New Covenant theology, which kind of, there's lots of New Covenant theologies, really, and a lot of it's a product of the internet, really, largely. And I wouldn't be an expert, but I think I heard a couple of years ago, James Reinhan, who is a, he holds to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, I heard it years ago now, but he did a really good talk on New Covenant Theology. You can find that on, um, yeah, I think it was James Reinan. It's on Sermon Audio if you want to look that up. But long and short of it is the testing issue that seems to unite them all is the rejection of the Sabbath. Uh, again, Sabbath goes right to creation, go right back to creation week. It was kept in Exodus chapter 16. This is before the giving of the table of the law that law written by the finger of God. So it's different from the ceremonial law or the temporal laws that were there. Um, fast forward a little bit to Exodus chapter 20, you have um, remember the Sabbath day. It's not just something that's uh, brought in and never there before. It's right there from creation. By the way, when time ends, we'll be in an eternal Sabbath. What do we do in the Sabbath? We set aside to do what? To worship. To worship. What will we do in heaven? We'll worship him for all eternity. So there will be an eternal Sabbath in eternity. The moral law never ever changes. You might say, well, it says one day in seven. That's going to change, right? Yeah, but the one day in seven is the day itself was never given in the fourth commandment. We're told one day in seven. We know from the Old Testament, it's the seventh day of the week. The New Testament pattern changes, goes by the resurrection day. Um, look at the accounts of the resurrection, the first day of the week. It says a number of times, start of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and so on and so forth. So I tell you, there's a lot of discussion that goes on about the Reformed faith and no one cares about the Sabbath. The Sabbath should be a delight. It should be, wow, we can spend the day with the Lord. And we the Sabbath should be there in such a way that it is a day of joy, in such a way that we want to spend more time with Him. It is a spirit, it's like a spiritual barometer or temperature of the religion of the nation. And I think one of the dangers, um, and I'm gonna speak, I think there's a I don't know how many churches in the United States keep the Sabbath anymore. There seems to be very many who speak out against it and things like that. There's a fair number of churches that still hold to Sabbath observance in Northern Ireland and also in Scotland. This is part of the, con the confessions of faith. Now, that doesn't mean, ergo, that means it's true. But you got to ask yourself, if the ch early church 
medieval church and stuff like that, all kept to the Sabbath, the Lord's Day. What has changed in the last 50-odd years? And it wasn't just the Reformed faith. One of the things, actually interesting enough, if you go back to the 19th century, Charles Finney, who was not exactly the most theologically orthodox, I'm not an advocate of Charles Finney, far from it, but one of the things he and his temperance movement was against was Sabbath breaking. If I'm not mistaken, I might be getting mixed up there, but also Billy Sunday would preach against Sabbath breaking. We don't care about Sabbath breaking anymore, largely in a lot of places. That is an area we need to repent. And that is an area where, how can we expect the Lord to bless that? And if the Sabbath goes, so will the rest of our week, and we won't be too interested in much of the things of the Lord. Um, now, if this is new to you, I never, I never heard anything like this. I just thought, oh, that's the thing of the, Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever else. I'd encourage you to go through the, the catechisms, the Westminster catechisms. You can find them online or I'd encourage you to read them as well. Um, the Reformed faith should does and should encourage unity. Unity. We realize we're all one church and we should want as much unity as is possible. You go back to the, the 16th century, there was, you know, essentially only one church. There were, okay, breakaways um, and, and, and some who rightly rejected the reign of Antichrist, such as the Waldensians, the Albigensians in the south of France. Um, trying to think of other groups as well. Um, some groups in northern Italy. The Lollards, the Hussites. And there were, I believe, it's hard to record this exactly, but there were churches within that fold of the Catholic Church would have preached the gospel. It may have been corrupted by you know, various things that kind of crept in, but there was the gospel to an extent, and I believe that ended under Trent. And they formally anathematized the gospel during the Council of Trent of the 16th century, the Counter-Reformation, where they put it out in black and white that they were against justification by faith alone, plus other gospel doctrines. And then, officially, no more a church, a synagogue of Satan. And that's another area where Reformed theology is incredibly important. Understanding the role of the Pope of Rome. Don't have a lot of time to go through it here. But if you if you chart over the last 200 years and our apathy and our kind of, we treat the Pope of Rome, that man of sin, son of perdition, just like any other false teacher or something like that. He's not. And there is a massive deception with the, the Church of Rome. And one of the reasons why we have become so, use the term soft or whatever, is because of a rejection of the doctrine of Antichrist. That the Pope is the Antichrist. Now, I've done programs on this before. I don't intend to lay out all the arguments here because we'd be here 10 hours with all the topics that need to be covered. But that we have a right view. Martin Luther saw it earlier, in, you know, that this man of sin, he is against the gospel. He must be that antichrist. And John Knox, the first message he preached on was on Daniel chapter seven on the antichrist. It doesn't mean, by the way, oh, therefore this is the most important doctrine that must be taught. But it's very interesting at the beginning of the Reformation, two doctrines, doctrine of justification by faith alone. And another thing that led to the, the breaking away from Rome, because a lot of these men were, well, you got to, maintain as much unity as possible. But they, they also then saw that the, the Pope of Rome was the Antichrist. And when they broke when they broke away, it came out from among them, be separate, saith the Lord, from you know, an Antichrist system, something that was no longer Christian. The Lord blessed that. So we should promote unity wherever possible, but not with a false church and realizing 
what the Pope of Rome is. It is, it's either Church of God, the Church of Rome, or it is the masterpiece of Satan. I go for more the second one. And I think we need to listen far more than we do to the men of old who spoke on Revelation and things like that. The church is missing a lot of these things. Accountability. Accountability. There's a lot of maverickism within churches. Shameless plug for my sister, my sister, my government that I believe is biblical. Presbyterianism, I believe that, and look, my brothers and sisters in Christ who are Baptists by conviction, who would have, who would hold to 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, will also hold to plurality of elders. It's not just one person who makes the decision that, and you got to be careful. We, we can have this thing of plurality of elders, but really one calls the shots. You know, you might have four elders and the minister comes in, says, this is how things are going to happen. And in a practical sense, they just go, uh-huh, the other three. So we can talk about plurality of elders, but really it needs to be in such a way that they're godly men, all seeking to understand the word of God and to follow the word of God, and that they, four or five elders you have, prayerfully guided by the Spirit of God, make decisions together for the good of the flock. That is not just one person. And that you have that accountability. And again, you don't have broken away churches kind of doing their own thing. And you had, and you have, um, the example of Acts chapter 15. Again, I'd have to do a separate program on that. But where there's an accountability between each of the churches and, and that would happen at a local level. We call them presbyteries. And what happens, just say, for example, I don't know, much of the 51% of the congregation or large segment of the congregation might go against you or something like that for preaching against it. it happened to somebody like John, Jonathan Edwards in history. He was a congregationalist. And you have that accountability to the presbytery. You are not just there to do your own thing, for want of a better term. You have other people, and a multitude of counselors, their safety. That's the book of Proverbs tells us this, that it's kind of like an inverted pyramid. And as you get further to the top, you have, you know, you have your local church with a number of elders where most of the decisions on a local level are taken, then some other things that affect the wider church and the presbytery level, and then um, up again, the synod. And again, this is just plurality of elders, where we don't just think, well, it's layers of accountability. It would take a while to explain, but it's important that ministers, or anybody for that matter, doesn't think that they can just do whatever they like. Giving a practical example, you're missing from church. And your minister the next morning, just I'm not trying to get on your case or anything, but just rings you up. And says, oh, hi, I missed you from church. Is everything okay? Just that little bit of accountability. Because we're so individualistic today. And this is what Reformed theology is about far more than just TULIP. I hope you're seeing this, and I hope I'm, by God's grace, able to explain this properly, that it's far more than just, hey, I've got my apologetic down to destroy the Arminians. It's far more than that. It's far more than that. Accountability is massively important within Reformed theology because Reformed theology believes in the, I'm probably going to, Catholicity of the church, the universality of the church. And we're not just to be accountable to each other in the church, of course we are, and to elders and elders to their people, absolutely, but also to the wider church. There's responsibilities to the wider church, and no church should ever start to become an island just doing their own thing and thinking that, that they are great and everybody else isn't. That can, by the way, that's not just independence that can happen with, that can happen with any church of any different denomination, of any different background. Be, be, be careful with that. 
that can lead to trouble. And that can lead to self-righteousness. And think you're better than everybody else. When all churches, you know, you can go to some churches and they may not be great and they may have their problems, but you can learn. Go there. There's been times, you know, you might be told one thing or another about a certain church or something. You go there and you talk to people and go, you come back and go, you know what? The, I was really encouraged by going there. We're a body. We're a body. Get out of the habit of thinking, you know what? Everybody else needs to listen to me. We're not going to agree on the decisions of church government. And it's especially tested at this time. This is where the, the importance of Reformed theology comes in. And, and your adherence and your understanding of a holistic, if you want to use that term, um, view of Reformed theology kicks in because do you think that every decision by the elders you're going to agree with? There's people who disagree opening, closing the church, or masks, no masks. You know, there's a whole hodgepodge of reasons. I'm not getting into most of because I you know I think it's been debated to death by people who don't know what they're talking about. I'm sorry, but and I, and I don't want to add my voice to another person who's not an expert on these things. I think you know, we, we need more. We need more talking on what we do know, which is the spiritual truth, and then the things that don't cause us to sin. We obey because that's what we're called to do. Um. We need to not just do our own thing. The, 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 the New Testament, the Old Testament, none of the Bible calls us to be lone rangers. It doesn't. You may, okay, you might think of John the Baptist on Patmos by himself. There's some examples of that, yes. And there's the, the Martin Luthers in history. But they're the rarities. And when you want to write your own history, there is danger ahead. There's danger ahead. And we need to be careful that, you know what? We and what we're doing goes into the background and it's all about Christ. The whole, again, the whole issue, somebody might think of the whole issue with John MacArthur. I may do a program early next week. I think the schedule is going to be a bit back and forth. I think it's either going to be Tuesday or Thursday. I might do Tuesday next week. I'll put up a some kind of a thing in a schedule at some stage. But I, I, I'm reluctant to do it because on one hand, there's enough division out there. There's There needs to be less talking from many and more listening. Again, that may include myself at times. But at the same time, I'm concerned about some of the things that John MacArthur is saying. Irregardless, or irregardless, I hate that word. <laughs> um, separate from his views, okay? And we've got to be careful. I said this earlier on in the pandemic. Don't throw the rest of the church under the bus because you disagree with them on a certain issue. We may be annoyed with each other, and I'm sure we are, and but don't do it. Do not do it. Think the best. Think the best. Think the best. The Lord... There, unless there's clear-cut cases of somebody not preaching the gospel or something like that, but the, the issue of opening and closing churches, people are doing their best. They're struggling. They're trying. Okay, so... So we also talked about... Good understanding of Reformed theology also understands this. With some in the church, and I suffered from this as well, I'm not just talking about something I've never done in the past. I remember years ago when looking for a church, it's like I had a shopping list. Must hold to this view, must hold to this view, must hold to this view. Now, I'm not against finding the best church possible and praying about it. But I think there's a danger sometimes with good zeal, when we don't want to quench zeal when it's going towards the Lord, but there can be an ungodly, basically consumer-like mentality of when you're joining a church. You want it to basically tick off every 
single one of your, you want to agree with on everything rather than praying and then the Lord leading you to that church. You may disagree with him on one or two things. So that's, that's going to be pretty normal. Uh, make sure it's, can you continue there in good conscience and serve the Lord? And if that's the case, stay. Because there's too much, there's too much hopping around. There's too much changing. There's too much. Reformed theology understands and recognizes that there is no church on earth. This is in chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. All churches are subject to mixture and error. All churches. Now, there are certain churches and denominations which have compromised in the authority of the Scripture. That's different, and that would be a good reason to move. But all churches on earth are subject to mixture and error. And Reformed theology should not begin with separatism. It should begin with looking for unity as much as possible. That's the example that was in the 16th century, Probably, sadly, not as much in the 17th century. Let's be honest, it was, there's, you know, none of these eras, the men are not perfect, but there was a seeking for as much unity as possible until some of the, the splits emerged. But you have to make sure that the gospel should unite us. It shouldn't divide us. Worship should unite us, not divide us. Biblical, the biblical gospel and biblical worship will unite the church. Oh, should we have these instruments? Oh, it's going to be, you know, keep going, disco lights. True biblical worship will unite the church. And that was widely understood to being the regulative principle of worship in the 16th, 17th century as it developed on. An early church belief, nothing new to the, the reformers of the Puritans or anything like that, that that's why they didn't have instruments because they were for the, the sac temple sacrifices and things like that. And there was a cappella without musical instrumentation. And you have the singing of the Psalms. Which that's what they sung in the first century. I, what else were they singing? Was there any authorization to add anything else on? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is another title for was one of the was the title used in Psalm seventy six of the Septuagint, that exact title, um, translated from the Greek. So used there in Colossians chapter three verse sixteen, that the word of Christ dwell in you, referring to the Psalter. The Psalter is the word of Christ. But these things should unite us. Church government should unite us. The things that are biblical will unite us. Church government, the sacraments will unite us. And property administered, of course. These things are there to unite us, that we have one Lord, one baptism. That recognition of the universal church. See, if you don't have a recognition of the universal church, you're going to go, as soon as your church makes a mistake, or you perceive it, at least, as a mistake, they're dead to you, possibly. I've seen that many times over the years. Now, they made a mistake there, therefore they're gone. I don't, I'm not even sure if they're a church anymore. There are lots of churches that make far worse mistakes than even the one that you may be thinking of. And there's departures from Reformed theology which have affected and split the church. Some, some examples. There are groups, I don't know if anybody's aware of, you know, the Covenanters from 17th century, I had to think of the century there for a second. Um, there are groups that are, they're so reformed okay they're so reformed i mean you have to read james durham or you're not reformed you know what i mean um 
and it, it can get, and there's, you know, they have these tiny little denominations where nobody is reformed enough to be with them. They're Westminster, but they don't join with anybody. And some of these are good preachers. I'm not saying that I've heard some very good messages from churches like this, but why are they not in, in a denomination and striving for that unity? No, you're not going to agree with everybody on everything. You're not. You're simply not. But there has to be that accountability and the, the kind of separatism that can emerge. And that's not Reformed theology. Reformed theology has a big emphasis on unity. Not at the expense of truth. And it, there's been failures, of course. But there's been that emphasis, not starting with separation. When we do separate from people, it's with a broken heart, with sadness. We don't want to do it, but if needed, okay. For the sake of the gospel. For the sake, notice how I said, for the sake of the gospel. Not because of a disagreement over something else. Hyper-Calvinists, often. Well, the thing with hyper-Calvinism, the various different groups, some of them will be will become vastly independent. You see, because if you're a hyper-Calvinist, you'll think, well, you'll think the action, you'll think people are Calvinists or Reformed today who preach the free offer of the gospel, that the gospel needs to be preached to all, or that it is a sincere gospel to all people, etc. and so on, that they're compromising the gospel and you're going to be very suspicious about them. You're, you're, a lot of them are going to, not all of them, but a lot of them are going to treat you like the enemy. And it's going to be schismatic. So be careful that you don't go away from one of these deviations from Reformed theology. And be careful that we don't anathematize the rest of the church. That we're making sure that we're uniting around the confessions. Of course, it's not that everything that is important is in the confessions. There's more as well. But what happens when Reformed theology is downplayed, or Reformed theology is just seen as a synonym of Calvinism, and that's it, in the tulip. Here's what happens. The, the Sabbath goes away pretty quickly. People don't want to make an issue about anything outside of those issues. I'm not saying we try to be gracious towards things that don't directly impact the gospel and things like that. But if it's God's law... I remember um, giving an example. I was listening to a program, but this was a couple of years ago. And the, the guy in the, the program was talking about Reformed theology. And one of the things he said was, he talked about the law of God. And he said, well, how many Christians even agree with what that is? And you see, we've got to understand, we've got to get away from that it's just Calvinism. That the people who do, I don't know, debates or titles Calvinism, that that is Reformed theology. I'm Reformed, I'm done. That's not anything else. When there's far more, and we're like, forget the name Reformed. We're talking about the Christian faith. What is that law of liberty? What is that standard by which we're to go towards? Because if we, if we have an antinomian attitude, it will, just, it will weaken your churches. Church discipline will be affected. And eventually, it may even cause splits and divide and Lack of church discipline also leads to, I think it's in Revelation 2, 15, 16, 17, Leviticus 26, churches which won't discipline people, the Lord fights against them with the word of his mouth. There's covenant cursing upon those churches. But there's also cursing upon the legalists and things like that. 
So we got to be biblical, gracious. Reformed theology, the person talking about Reformed theology, if you have an understanding, understands his biggest problem is not out there. It's right in here. Your heart. If any of you are listening and you're ministers of the gospel, the thing you would fear the most is the sin that dwells within your own heart. Hopefully that's been a blessing. That was just something in my heart. Before I deal with anything else, I might look at that. There's The next program I hope to do is... I'm hoping something else will pop up, and I hope the discussion will change, but I digress. I don't think so. Relating to John MacArthur, some of the concerns, again, I really, really appreciate John MacArthur, but there are some concerns that I have. And I kind of, before I did that, I wanted to lay the groundwork in why it's important that we don't just kind of go, aha, you see, John MacArthur, he's doing X, Y, and Z. That's what Reformed theology looks like. When... Have great respect for John MacArthur, but he doesn't hold to the Sabbath. Did a program on that before. He does not hold to covenant theology. Praise God that he does hold to Calvinism. We can't just say, hey, here's the popular, here's the lightning rod, here's the whatever, and that is what's going to bless and help the church. We can be blessed by certain people who may not be that reformed or whatever, but we got to make sure if the church, for reformation in the church, for greater unity in the church, that we think about things far beyond that. Think about worship. Think about church discipline. That's important in a, in a covenantal context. The covenant of grace throughout time. And while we're taking little bits here and there, we'll always be divided. Right now, the church, I'm sorry, is in absolute smithereens. It's not united. We, we might say, oh yeah, we can get together at a conference and we can all agree in the gospel, but we have no accountability to one another. None. The church is in absolute pieces. And I would say we Presbyterians haven't really done as much as we can either. There needs to be more dialogue between denominations. And we need to sit down with each other and kind of go, where do we disagree? And we got to study both sides. Who's wrong here? And there's a lot of work to do. The unity Christ is speaking about is not just a unity where mm, we just agree in the gospel, the spiritual unity. Where that is a that is a truth. We're all unified in Christ, every single believer. But that would be one that the world may believe. Just look at that. I'll just leave it at that. I. This is not to kick anybody out of the kingdom. This is not anything else. This is further, Lord willing, further promotion of unity. It says, verse 20, I do not pray for those, for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is John chapter 17, verse 21, that they all may be one as you father are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe the world may believe that you sent me. Now, is our unity going to be the difference? No, but that the world may believe. There's something about our testimony as believers in Jesus Christ is 
tarnished when we're not united. And I'm talking about in a biblical sense. This is not, let's all get together with the Pentecostals who reject, in a practical sense, Sola Scriptura. This is not what I'm talking about. This is talking about a promotion of the, the truths of Reformed theology, not downplaying them. And I'm not saying you can't have fellowship with somebody and all this kind of stuff. But the truths of the Reformed faith should bring us together because they're biblical. And if we believe biblical truth, it will bless the church. So if you got any questions, begettofilms at gmail.com. Either keep checking back to YouTube for the live program and either Tuesday or Thursday, eventually settle on a day um, where we'll go through that recent it was an interview where I have some concerns with the direction of John MacArthur. Keep him in prayer. Keep us in prayer. And may the Lord bless you all. <laughs>